0: The text for our sermon this morning, Job chapter 22, we'll read verse 21 and then 27 and 28. Now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace, thereby good will come to you. You will make your prayer to him, he will hear you, and you will pay your vows. You will also declare a thing and it will be established for you, so light will shine on your ways. This time, we'll call the kids to the front for the children's sermon. And the verses that we just read, Job's friend, Eliphaz, is the one who's speaking. Now, Eliphaz is talking, but the words are the words that God gave. So we must pay close attention to what they say. Last Sunday, we learned about using God's name in bad ways. We learned how it is a great sin to mistreat God's name. Today, we learned the right way. use God's name. Sometimes we have to make what is called an oath. An oath is a special kind of promise. When we make an oath, it's called swearing an oath. And when we swear an oath, we're making a special promise to be telling the truth. So in the verses that we read, Eliphaz tells us that those who love God keep the promises that they make in God's name. What makes an oath special though? What makes it a special promise? What makes an oath a special promise is that we're calling on God to show that what we're saying is true. Sometimes when you're telling someone a story, they, you know, maybe a story about your mom or dad, and they go, I don't believe that. What do you say to them? You say, you don't believe me? Ask my dad, he'll tell you. When we swear an oath, we're saying, God knows that what I'm saying is true. So I think you can see that an oath is is very special. It's not something we should just do whenever someone doesn't believe us. Now, did you know that your parents made an oath for you when you were baptized? They promised to raise you as a Christian, to bring you to church, to teach you to pray, to make sure that you know what the Bible teaches. One day, you'll go to confirmation class and you'll learn more about your Christian faith. And then you'll stand up here and take that oath for yourself as your promise to love and serve God. Your parents did that for you because they love you. You were too little to do it for yourself, so they did it for you. Wasn't that good of them? Yeah. And one day you'll make that oath your own promise, and that'll be good too. Now, we're learning about the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are not just ten rules to live by, there are also ten promises that God makes to His people. In the first commandment, we learn that we don't need another God. Because God, our God, is the one and only true God. We never need to ask another God to help us. We never need to ask someone else to help save us from our sins. We never have to try to save ourselves. God is our God, and He is the only God. In the second commandment, we learn that we don't have to try and figure out ourselves the right way to worship God. In the second commandment, God promises to accept our worship because He teaches us how to do it. And He will always be happy with our worship if we worship Him the way that He says. And in this third commandment, we learn that we don't have to ask someone else to back us up when we tell the truth. We don't need someone else to prove the truth. We have God. When we use an oath in God's name, we're asking God to agree that we're telling the truth. You can't get better than that. You can't have someone better than God on your side, can you? But we also learn that God's name and God's word are very special. They are holy. So we should always be careful and respectful when we speak of God and when we make promises in God's name. God's name. And God's Word are not toys or jokes. They're certainly not to be used when we're angry. Since we love God, we always want to use God's name as a way to show our love for Him. So always remember that. After we pray, you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, Thy Word is perfect. Restoring the soul, making wise the simple, enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In our text, Eliphaz is speaking. And he begins the chapter by proclaiming the great benefits of repentance and faith in God. And the chapter closes with a list of exhortations and blessings associated with true faith. You notice that in verse 27... Eliphaz links faith in God, proper worship, and the keeping of vows to God. And verse 28 speaks of the blessings associated with keeping vows. When you swear a thing in the name of God, God protects you so that thing is seen to be true, and you are established as a faithful, trustworthy person. So we'll keep these considerations in mind as we handle our subject today. Our outline is, number one, the lawfulness of oaths. Number two, the rules for oaths. And number three, the subject of our oaths. So first of all, the lawfulness of oaths. This Lord's Day gives us a case study in how the church handles controversy. It might seem odd to us that a whole Lord's Day is devoted to the question of a lawful oath. But there is a reason. Our catechism was published in 1563 in the early days of the Reformation and part of the Reformation was a radical rethinking of all tradition and all doctrine. Our Reformers systematically went through all the doctrines of the Christian faith and reanalyzed them in the light of Scripture. Now, the Reformation was not an attempt to bulldoze 1,500 years of church history and build again from the ground up. But as is the case in any movement There are those who misunderstand what's going on. My daughter and I discussed this phenomenon about a week ago. Robespierre, one of the leaders of the French Revolution. This man sent countless people to the guillotine. He himself was eventually deemed not revolutionary enough and was himself sent to the guillotine. In the early days of the Reformation in Germany, there were those who felt that the Reformation wasn't reforming the church enough, and these men led groups that splintered away. Of primary concern then to our German and Swiss reformers were the Anabaptists. In the early so today we think of the Anabaptists as the quiet, keep to themselves Hutterites or Amish. In the 1500s, they were anything but quiet and keep to themselves, people. They were violent revolutionaries. They were the communists of the 16th century. One of their leaders, John of Leyden, established his own kingdom in Munster, and he sat on a throne with the title, King of the New Jerusalem and of Righteousness over the Whole Earth. Their other leaders were men known as the Zwickau Prophets, who claimed to be receiving new revelations directly from God, you know, as if they were equals of the Old Testament Prophets. Now, obviously, this made them trouble for our Reformers. The Reformers were engaged in a legitimate work of purifying the church from unscriptural traditions and beliefs. They were saying, look, some things need to be corrected. The Anabaptists were saying, let's just torch the place and start over. Now, Jesus never promised that the church wouldn't sometimes be obscured, but He did promise that the gates of hell would never prevail against it. You read the book of Judges, for instance, and you'll be hard-pressed to find the true church. Even the heroes of the book are pretty despicable most of the time. But right smack in the middle of that era, we find the Bethlehem of Boaz and Ruth. The church was largely obscured from view, but it wasn't gone. So, while the Reformers were saying that the church had been obscured and needed cleaning up, the Anabaptists were saying the church is gone and it needs to be founded all over again. Now, where did they get, where did such a belief originate? Now, we need to understand something very important, and I know this feels tedious to many people, but it is incredibly important and incredibly true. What a man practices... Is a direct result of what he believes. That's why Reformed churches have always placed such a high premium on theology and doctrinal precision. A man never lives higher than his doctrine. Water doesn't rise higher than its source. Now, the Anabaptists taught that the physical material of Jesus' human nature didn't come from Mary. He brought it with Him from heaven, and He merely passed through Mary like water through a pipe. Now, let's ask an important question. What communion does water have with a pipe? Yeah, none. What communion would Christ have with us if He had merely passed through Mary? None. He'd be entirely outside of a human race, in which case, He couldn't save us. Now, this view of Christ's nature influenced their view of the church, Christians, they said, stand completely outside of the world. Now, what does the Bible teach? It says that God calls His people spiritually out of the world, but He doesn't call them physically out. He doesn't separate them from society into communes. His people are to be salt and they are to be light. They are to bear witness to Christ in a dark world. Light must not be put under a bushel. The Anabaptists had other distinct doctrines. They still do. First, they rejected the church's scriptural practice of baptizing their children. That's where they get their name. That prefix Anna in Anabaptist means, again, a direct English rendering would be re-baptizer. Among their other distinctives were, were pacifism, political dissent, abstaining from an oath. The Anabaptist says, why should you swear? Aren't Christians truthful? Christians are born of the truth, swear not at all, and he appeals to Matthew 5. Now, it's important to state the facts. Matthew 5 does use those words. That's how they're written. But we must never take words out of their context, nor bring our own context to the words, because that gives the words a meaning entirely different than intended. So the Anabaptists misread the Sermon on the Mount, and they claimed that God was updating the morality of the Old Testament. They claimed that what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount was fundamentally opposed to the ethics of God's people in the Old Testament. Now that is dangerous because that places a wedge, it drives a wedge between the Old and New Testaments. It breaks the continuity of the covenant and places a wedge between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. It places a wedge between God's sovereignty over nations as well as over individuals. They read the Sermon on the Mount as if it weren't addressed to individuals, but rather to whole nations, and that's why they read, turn the other cheek as a command to pacifism. The command forbids personal retaliation. It does not forbid self-defense or military service. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was correcting the wicked practices of the Jews who had nullified the law by their traditions. So when Jesus says, you've heard it said, he's stating the tradition. And then when he says, but I say to you, he's providing the correct interpretation of the law. They were swearing by all sorts of things. The altar, the gold on the altar, the sacrifices, the temple, etc. Now God had commanded, Deuteronomy 6.13, Fear the Lord your God, serve Him only, and take your oaths in His name. Now, why do we have to swear at all? That's a good question, isn't it? Why do we have to swear at all? Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. More than this comes of evil. You notice Jesus did not say, more than this is evil. The reason we are sometimes compelled to swear is because men are sinners. The number one characteristic of sinners is unbelief. So an oath is sometimes necessary to defend the truthfulness of a statement. Since man is inclined to disbelieve his fellow sinner, it's sometimes necessary to call God as witness. God alone knows the heart, so He alone can confirm the truth. For 2 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, I call God as witness. In Joshua 22, verse 22, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh say, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knows. A true oath is calling God as witness. The oaths that Jesus is rebuking were oaths made in the names of creatures. These things don't know the heart. They don't know the truth. They're inanimate. So they can't be witnesses. Now, the seriousness of the oath is seen in its actual nature. What is it? It is calling upon God who knows our hearts and who knows the truth. So, when we call upon God as witness, and what we're calling Him to witness about is untrue, we're making God a party to our lie. Therefore, we're invoking His judgment upon ourselves. And that can actually be seen... In the format of righteous oaths in the Old Testament, the most common format of the oath begins with the words, the Lord do so to me and more also. That's the almost universal form of the oath in the Old Testament. Now, the background to that phrase, the Lord do so to me and more also, is God's covenant with Abraham. The covenant-making procedure required killing animals and splitting their corpses in half than laying the corpses out as a pathway. When the covenanting parties walked that pathway, they were saying, in essence, if I break this covenant, may God do to me what I did to these animals. So when the Old Testament saints swore oaths, they were calling upon God as witness and acknowledging God's right to exact revenge if they were speaking an untruth in God's name because an oath is calling upon the God of the covenant to bear witness to the truth. Now, I want to make one quick but important observation before we move to the second point. In the early days of the church, there were men that we we, we call dualists. They believed that the material world was created by the evil God of the Old Testament, and the spiritual world was created by the good God of the New Testament. The fundamental position of the Anabaptist movement is rotten. It is dualism. Now, it does not claim that there are two gods, but it acts as if, it, as if there are by driving a wedge between the morality of the God of the Old Testament and the morality of Jesus in the New Testament. And the evil effects of this error are still with us to this day. You see it whenever anyone defends immoral behavior by claiming that Jesus never speaks about it in the New Testament. You see it when men uh, appeal to the New Testament alone for doctrine instead of to the whole Bible. The unspoken assumption is that there is no continuity between the Old and New Testaments. And if such is the case, well, we can safely throw away the Old Testament because it contains nothing of value to us. So we come to our second point, the rules of an oath. At the beginning of this sermon, I said that this Lord's Day is a case study on how the church handles controversy. Now, that's actually true of all of the church's creeds and confessions. The Nicene Creed that we recite during Advent was a response to the error of Arius and his followers who denied the deity of Christ. The Athanasian Creed was a response to denials of the Trinity The canons of Dort were a response to the errors of James Arminius. The church is often forced to clarify her beliefs, to state her doctrines with additional clarity, even to codify the use of terms. That's what we have in this Lord's Day 37. The authors of the catechism were responding to the errors of Rome on the one hand and the Anabaptists on the other hand. The catechism states that the the rules of a lawful oath, when the magistrate requires it, or when it may be needful otherwise to maintain and promote fidelity and truth. The scriptures that the catechism lists as the source of its answer come from both the Old and the New Testaments. In other words, the way the church is to respond to controversy is by appeal to the whole Word of God and to the Word of God alone. When a controversy arises about doctrine or practice, the church is never to ask, what's everybody else doing? What do the top scholars say? What's the consensus of psychology? What does our culture believe? No, the question is always, what saith the Scripture? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Remember, Saul swore a rash oath in 1 Samuel 14, which nearly cost Jonathan his life. When his fighting men most needed their strength, he put them under a mandatory fast with a curse on anyone who ate. David swore a rash oath in 1 Samuel 25, swearing that he would wreak vengeance on Nabal and his household. Herod swore a rash oath and it cost John the Baptist his head. Such oaths are always improper. Other examples of this would be the promises that people make when they're in trouble. Lord, if you get me out of this, I swear I'll go to church every Sunday from now on. I promise I'll never touch another drop of booze. Now these oaths are not only rash oaths. They're not even of the same nature as a biblical oath. Because a biblical oath is one that calls upon God to bear witness to the truth. These foxhole oaths Don't call on God to bear witness to truth. At best, they're attempted bribery. They're offering to God what we already owe him and then hoping he'll take it and look the other way. David's oath was a profane oath because it was calling on God's name as witness to his own thirst for revenge. Saul's oath was rash because it punished righteous men and it strengthened the hand of their enemies. Herod's oath was the effect of drunkenness. Now, making oaths is handled extensively in Scripture, especially in Leviticus. And the law pronounces judgment on anyone who carelessly utters an oath, whether to do good or evil. Think about this. In other words, you're guilty of breaking it if you fail to do what you swore, even if what you swore to do was wrong. You'd be guilty of sin if you fulfilled it because it was to do evil. And you'd be guilty if you didn't fulfill it because you would have taken God's name in vain. You would have called God to witness a lie. And that's why the Bible says, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. How many I do's have been sworn at God's altar that were later later trampled in the mud as non binding But the law does not say, thou shalt never swear an oath. In fact, it commands us to swear in God's name, Deuteronomy 10.20. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and cling to Him, and you shall swear by His name. More than that, Scripture provides examples, this is what our catechism tells us, in both the Old and the New Testaments of men swearing lawful oaths. In Genesis 21, Abraham swore an oath of peace to Abimelech. In Genesis 31, Jacob swore an oath to Laban. In Romans 1.9, Paul swears to proclaim the truth and calls God to witness this fact. You may have noticed the leeway that our justice system Uh, judicial system gives for people with the Anabaptist objection to swearing oaths because they are allowed to say, I solemnly affirm instead of I solemnly swear. You can laugh off the Anabaptists of the 16th century as weirdos, but here we are 500 years later still straddled with some of their quirks. And that's why it isn't imbalanced for our catechism to devote a whole extra Lord's Day to this discussion. To this day, Christians are torn over the questions of owning firearms or of self-defense, or of just war, or of the death penalty. And the negative positions, that is, Christians must not own firearms, Christians mustn't practice self-defense, Christians must never militarily defend their nations, criminals are not to be executed for their crimes. Those positions are all unscriptural ideas that have trickled down to us from the Anabaptists of the 16th century. We come to the third point then. The subject of our oath. The subject of our oaths must always be... God. We are never to swear as the Jews of Jesus' day by the altar or the gold or the temple. We must never swear as the papists in the name of Mary, Peter, or the saints. The saints are in heaven around the throne of God. They don't see our hearts or know all things. In Isaiah 63, verse 16, we read, "'Though Abraham be ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father.'" How could you swear in Abraham or Israel's name? They don't know us. How could I swear in Peter's name? He doesn't know me. He can't see my heart. Getting to heaven doesn't make you all knowing. Swearing an oath in the name of God, according to God's rules, is an acknowledgement that God knows all things. It's a confession that He alone is God. Swearing in the name of saints or of any other creature robs God of His crown. It dishonors them and it dishonors God. Jesus swore an oath in the name of His Father when He stood before Caiaphas. The angel in Revelation swore by Him who liveth forever. Swearing an oath religiously in the name of God, when we do so, we ensure that God alone receives the glory for the truth. The religious oath acknowledges God as God. An oath swore in the name of God, whether in the courtroom or in the workplace, is an expression of our faith in God and in His truth. It should always be our practice that yes means yes and no means no. And it's only because men are liars that we need stronger words than that. On the other hand, it dishonors God if you refuse to say, I swear an oath, I will only say, I affirm. You see, this aspect of the third commandment also relates to our fellow man. It's a sin to use God's name in vain. But in the subject before us, we're looking at the use of God's name in reference to our fellow man. A rash oath in God's name is a twofold sin. It's speaking a lie to our fellow man and therefore depriving him of justice and of truth. But it's a greatly aggravated form of the sin because it calls God to witness as we defraud our fellow man, it's a double evil. Now, I want to conclude with an exhortation based on the fact, as we mentioned in the children's sermon, that everyone here has been the object of an oath. At baptism, we parents swore in God's name to bring up our children in the fear of the Lord. What have we done with that oath? Have we plied every opportunity to their spiritual advantage? Have we brought them faithfully to God's house? Have we read the Scriptures to them? Have we helped them learn their catechism? Have we taught them to pray? The other side of that equation is that we are all bound to fear God by a solemn oath at our baptisms. What have we done with that oath? How have we honored it? That oath swore to cleave unto the triune God, to trust Him, to love Him, to forsake the world, to crucify our old nature, and to walk in a new and holy life. Do we indeed keep this oath or have we renounced it or voided it by our lives? Now that oath isn't a sinless perfection. That would be a rash oath. It's a vow to be faithful to God. Sin that is lamented and opposed doesn't void the covenant. Hear what God says to you, you who desire to be faithful. If they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments... Then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant, I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. And God even confirms that word by an oath. He himself swears to his own promise. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us now God's people are in the world but not of it they let their light shine the light which God has given them in their hearts by the holy spirit and thus when they swear an oath in God's name, they are testifying that God is God, that He is truth Himself, and that He cannot lie, nor be party to a lie. There's a lot of religious experience in which God has no part. This is often the result of becoming religious without Christ. But when all is right in the heart, God's children swear an oath to God in Christ because salvation is... And the glorification of all of God's attributes lie only in Him. They wish to be saved only in the way which glorifies God's righteousness. Swearing in God's name acknowledges God to be our salvation. Remember the preface to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am your God. I chose you and saved you. Therefore, swear only in my name. May the Lord grant in our hearts the working of His Holy Spirit to continually swear by His name, to hallow His name, to dedicate ourselves to His service, to the glory of His free grace, according to His eternal oath, His promise, His covenant to a thousand generations. Let us pray.